This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Audio editing and bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we heard to talk about in this episode include... Stealth Systems. Trump as Ford. Redux. Frog Coffins of Finland. And the Jersey Devil. where we talk about murder. Right, murder of crows, that is. Atlas Games' macabre masterpiece of murderous mayhem. Murder of crows is a card game. It's got five basic kinds of cards, one for each letter of the word murder. You win by spelling the word out in front of you. But each card also has a snippet of flavor text. And when you spell murder... You can read your card's flavor text out loud in order to hear a clever little story about how the homicide happened. Like magic! Murder of Crows is easy to learn. And gorgeous, Edward Gorey meets Caligari. The demo crew at Atlas sells this game like crazy when they show it off at conventions. But somehow it remains less well-known than it deserves. Ken and Robin to the rescue! Exactly! Now you and I, Ken, can be found in Murder of Crows! That's right. Anyone who buys Murder of Crows as part of this limited-time promotion will get special Ken and Robin cards for their Murder of Crows decks. We're pretty great, too, in the parlance of the game were three crow cards, which means it's hard to stop whatever nefarious no-good we get up to. And as always, Tom, Denmark's art is wickedly beautiful. And spot on. Uh, yours looks fetchingly Betrachian. The deal is this. Head to atlas-games.com slash Robin. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> Buy Murder of Crows. And get the Ken and Robin promo cards. You may never have the chance to commit such foul deeds again. Foul deeds perhaps inspired by the need to read out loud URLs. <laughs> That's right. Not not with the two of us, anyway. Head over to atlas-games.com slash murder, Ken and Robin. Or follow the link in the show notes. Yeah, follow the link in the show notes. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Josh Kroger asks Ken and Robin, what does an engaging RPG stealth system need besides a number of iterative skill checks? And I have an answer for this question, Robin. Do you have an answer before I give the ultimate and awesome answer? Well, let's build up to the awesome answer by looking at the way stealth works in um, movies and TV and, and media and uh, try and figure out what it does and uh, build out from there. And, and presumably, your brilliant answer uh, then solves that problem. Exactly. So, um, if you look at uh, stealth scenes in uh, the source material, and I think this stealth is something that works a lot better on movies and TV rather than on the, the printed page. Uh, you have the music, you have the visuals, and uh, your a director and actor are able to invest the uh, will the person be caught or won't the person be caught with all these little micro moments and uh, with music build a sense of tension that is uh, hard to reach on the page and I would submit also very difficult to reach around the gaming table. Usually you have a either one character going in alone uh, in order to uh, steal something, that something might be information, and then get back uh, without being caught. And so the uh, close scrapes are all about detection and what sort of trouble they'll be in if they uh, 
uh, get captured. They sometimes do get captured, which is uh, perhaps a second uh, segment of its own. And uh, you've also got the point where you've just got a bunch of people trying to break in somewhere together, usually in order to get surprise on the bad guys. You're trying to sneak up on them, and uh, you don't want to be undiscovered throughout, but you don't want to be you don't want to be discovered before you're in position. So those things are tough to create rules that create that sense of tension around the uh, in a in your uh, in your gaming hut, as it were. Uh, so Ken, do we need to mull this over any further before we get to your brilliant solution? I'm going to I'm going to spring my brilliant solution, and as always, my brilliant solution is to look to see what a better game designer has already done. And in this case, <laughs> it is Wilhelm March whose Project Dark solves this very question by being the first uh, stealth RPG in the sense that it's an RPG that models the same kind of things that you get in uh, Thief and other awesome stealth video games. And that is, assume the condition of stealth, right? Instead of having to roll stealth or sneaking or uh, be hidden or move silently eight million times and thus fall victim to the laws of probability and the laws of doing the same boring thing over and over again. What uh, Project Dark does is it assumes that you're all stealthy and lets your degree of stealth determine how many other things you can do. And at what point the GM, who is the person, after all, whose job it is to do all the boring crap, has to roll a spot hidden for the guards, right? So it's kind of the inverse of Gumshoe's player facing, in which the players always roll stuff. In this case, the GM, because the rolling iteratively is boring, it goes to the GM to do that, while the players are like, oh my god, is he going to make it? Is he not going to make it? How much stealth can we afford to spend uh, to do this thing that we're here to do? We have to get to the diamond and steal it out of the big um, Lexan cube, and we know that th there's going to be alarms and lasers and all kinds of stuff, and right now we're perfectly hidden over in the uh, abstract expressionist gallery because no one is there even when the museum is open, so we're totally <laughs> safe, but if we go to the room where the big diamond is, we're going to have to spend more of our of our uh, freedom of action to do stuff, and the GM will then start rolling to see if we're noticed. So by inverting that decision, Will's game Project Dark uh, manages to create exactly that sense of stealth and tension that you say is best created, and I agree that it is best created in other media, in movies and uh, TV, within the confines of the game, because you, the players are in suspense, but not about what you're going to roll. It's about whether the bad guys will see you because your roles are going to be to disarm the lasers or to um, uh, open up the Lexan cube or to silently kill a guard who has stumbled into the abstract expressionist wing by accident or by dint of having a fancy education and student loans to pay off. And by God, he's going to go look at Mark Rothko's in the dark or whatever. Well, he's got his ninja outfit patterned like a Rothko. Like a Rothko, exactly. Which... Man, that's kind of an awesome idea all by itself. Anyway, um, <laughs> look out. He's a de Kooning. Get him. <laughs> um, the, uh, the, the whole notion of, of the stealth as an activity, of course, has to be really central to gameplay in a way that it is not in most games, which is why that sort of only works, you know, in a stealth RPG. But in a regular RPG, you can maybe take you know, everyone's stealth points and add them together and say, this is your stealth budget and everything that you do is going to cost you X points of your stealth budget. And so the more things you do when you're stealthing in, the more trouble you're going to get into and killing a guy is 10 stealth points and disarming an, an alarm is such and such. And if you roll your skill really well, maybe you have to, you can spend less points. So you can sort of cobble that 
general kind of engine together from a pre-existing game system. Um, or of course you could just, uh, get project dark when it is released sometime this year. One hopes. Right. And what that does is it eliminates one of the, the difficulties with stealth. And why we're talking about getting away from just iterative die rolls is that, uh, Stealth is a pass-fail problem. Either you uh, get in through the door or you don't. And uh, if you don't get in through the door and the whole mission doesn't occur, that is boring and stupid. So if you have a system that is not about uh, whether you actually succeed in, in going through the early stages at least, but rather what does it cost you to go through the door? If you, you roll well, as you suggest, it's free or maybe only costs you one or two points out of your stealth pool. Um, this also suggests that you could do, I don't know if this is in Will's game, but also things that you could do to uh, regain stealth while you are uh, challenged. So, for example, if the guards are coming and you just press yourself up against the wall, that is, uh, if you succeed, you just don't lose points. But if you duck into the office for a while, you can gain some points back. And there has to be sort of a, a cost or risk to trying to gain points back. Uh, speaking of stealing ideas, sort of steal the Jenga idea from Epi Ravishal's Dread. Dread. Yeah. Um, and you might use something, you know, he's already using Jenga, so you might use a barrel of monkeys or something as some sort of a physical test that uh, increments up that the more, the further you get in, the, the more likely you are to fail or to have the monkeys fall apart or, or what have you. And the other thing about that is it takes what I consider to be the great flaw with uh, Epi's otherwise excellent game, Dread, which is that it takes pacing out of the hands of the GM and turns it on its head and makes it a virtue, which is to say it takes pacing out of the hands of the players, right? The whole point of stealth is you have no idea when that alarm is going to go off and you're in a system of tension. So that dread mechanism, or uh, if you don't want to rip off Epi and why should, why wouldn't you? He, he did a great job. I would rip him off with pride there. Um, and you don't want to just use Jenga, um, but whatever you're using is again, that same system where you assume that the tower is up and you're doing things until the tower comes down. And I think that when you take it out of what I considered the sort of a uh, more difficult and important world of narrative and into the less difficult and important world of sneaking around inside the art uh, museum or whatever, uh, then I think that uh, a Jenga or a barrel of monkeys or some other sort of physical iterative tower building mechanism, a repeat until you fail type uh, uh, game would actually model exactly what we're talking about here. Right. So I guess we sort of dealt with that issue. Are there other, there's other sort of stealth related issues to deal with. One of which is, are the consequences of failure interesting? Uh, and if they're not, how to make them interesting. So that does get us into the area of what if you get captured and uh, players notoriously dislike it when their uh, characters are imprisoned because they uh, feel, even if you make a point of giving them all sorts of ways out, they feel like they've lost options. They feel like they've lost their uh, freedom, which is what a lot of people play role-playing games to have. So if you are going to get them captured, uh, they're the standard ways of dealing with that. I think we've done a segment on that before, but just very quickly, uh, you make it evident to the uh, player that they are going to get out and you're not going to make them sit around for hours uh, role-playing out the experience of being imprisoned. And the question is not whether you're going to get out, but how quickly and what it costs you and or uh, conversely what you could possibly gain while you're imprisoned in the classic sort of uh, uh, James Bond model of get captured and learn some key fact about the 
villain's plans. Uh, another difficulty with stealth is that it is kind of solo oriented. Uh, one of the, the issues with that is that if you, you know, you don't bring 16 people into the art gallery to steal the, the diamond, you have the one expert go in. So you have to keep that kind of short uh, and uh, so that it's uh, entertaining for everybody else to watch while you and the stealth member of the team uh, sort that out. And there's a problem that uh, Gumshoe solves, which is that what if all of you are trying to sneak in somewhere and uh, that just then means that the person with the lowest stealth ability is the one who it all hinges on and the super stealthy guy who's invested all of her uh, points and effort and uh, identification into being a Mark Rothko ninja is, gets hosed because their ability is not the ability that matters. It's the ability of, of the worst person in the group. And the way that uh, Gumshoe solves that is with a piggybacking mechanic where the stealthiest person is able to sort of manage the other people as they kind of trail behind her and make sure that they don't get caught. Are there other um, general issues surrounding stealth we want to cover while we're on the topic? I think that the, I mean, this drifts us into another segment or another topic, but I want to go back to your notion that the notion of the solo stealth, the the guy who goes in on the wire into the CIA headquarters um, uh, to do the thing while the, the rest of the team is sort of watching on a monitor or whatever. And that's fun in a movie and it's boring in real life. I think the way to do that is to make sure that the mechanic for whatever solo thing, whether that's hacking or rigging or sneaking in, has to be a visually engaging, fun mechanic that doesn't actually take a lot of time. That you can play out that mechanic and then once you've come up with the result, you narrate uh, the rest of it that sort of explains, you know, what happened up to the result. So if you play out the mechanic, and I'm visually thinking something of, of card play so that you can have a visual, you know, up, oh, I played my ace up oh, matched by another ace. I played my eight. haha, You had a five. My eight beats your five. I played my, my last option, uh, which is a King and you only have a Jack. So I'm going to have troubles at the first. I'm going to blow through the second half and I'm going to escape uh, notably, but, but barely at the end. And so you just, narrate that story then real rapidly, but the visual act of, um, uh, sort of, uh, you know, uh, going head to head with the GM still gives the, the solo player a little of that spotlight that they wanted to be by being, uh, you know, Jane stealthy, um, the, the Mark Rocco ninja, possibly even the Georgia O'Keefe ninja and, um, the uh, rest of the, of the, of the team can watch, but it doesn't become an endless series of, well, now I'm going to roll this. Well, now I'm going to take this point. Now I'm going to do this thing. Um, because, Watching someone else play a role-playing game, as I don't believe I need to tell the audience, is less fun than actually playing a role-playing game most times. So the the goal for any of the solo activity stuff should be to keep it as tight as you can, and the player, what they lose in the amount of spotlight time, they gain in the amount of focus. And so if you can have it be a, a fun uh, little subsystem that stands on its own and is fun to play outside the rest of the game rules, then at least it'll be like watching someone play cards, which is way more fun than watching someone play a role-playing game, I think. Right. And by mentioning cards, you've come up with a, a way to do this that uh, uh, the problem with the, the barrel of monkeys or Jenga approach is that the uh, individual people's manual dexterity is not all equal. So what you could do in order to, to make sure that's not a factor is uh, have a death card so that uh, you just use an ordinary deck of cards and you say that, uh, for example, and you could, you know, what what the death cards would be would depend on the odds that you want to instill. But let's say for sake of example, uh, if you draw any 
black face card, that means that you have been caught and are in trouble and have to either flee or get captured. So uh, in that uh, setup, you are tempted to draw more cards to gain greater advantages. Uh, and the more cards you draw successfully without drawing one of the death cards, the better you do. But you're risking as you're going through the deck, each draw statistically increases the odds that you're going to hit one of those death cards. So that gives the uh, player sort of a, a strategic choice of do I, you know, do I also go for this other set of files now that I have the main set of files that I wanted? I, I can get them if I draw another card, but if I draw another card, that increases the time and risk that I spend and increases the chance of uh, being caught. And so that then, uh, you know, everybody's uh, equally able to draw cards, uh, presumably, uh, or have someone draw the card for them. And uh, that also gives everybody else sort of a visual focus around the table in order to uh, look at that. And you can also draw the other members of the team in if they have some way of contributing to your effort. Uh, for example, the person watching on the monitor you know, the, you see this a lot now in uh, procedural TV shows where they're looking at the security cams and they're going, oh, no, two bogeys, uh, 12 o'clock. And so that that would enable uh, the uh, players who are playing other characters to uh, do something to possibly, uh, you know, gain you a free pull out of a death card so that or uh, could put like a red, a red face card back in. Right. And so that would then give them a way to contribute and that, you know, the fighty people could be outside staging the diversion. That's that's your classic way of having the other people do something while stealthy guys stealthy. Or the sniper could be like on the other building ready to shoot a guard, you know, with their suppressed rifle. Right. There you go. Well, I guess it's time for us to uh, attempt a stealthy exit from this segment. I think we're going to creep through a commercial and then out the other side to our next segment. The Escapist calls it gaming's most insane supplement. After a century of secrecy, three months of non-stop publicity, and a record-breaking Kickstarter campaign, the Dracula dossier is finally available for you, the home listener. Not just Dracula Unredacted, the true first draft of Bram Stoker's novel, an after-action report for British intelligence, annotated by three generations of MI6 analysts, but also the massive director's handbook that allows you to follow the clues dropped in the pages and in the margins of that uncanny document. Follow them, that is, to any of 200 different encounters eerie objects, dangerous locations, and conspiratorial organizations, and enigmatic NPCs, any of which can be an innocent, or turned by Edom, or a minion of Dracula himself. Pretty clever, eh, Robin? Bet you wish you'd thought of that. Uh-huh, yeah. Thus creating an improvisational collaborative campaign for Knight's Black Agents, strangely similar to Robin's own Armitage Files campaign for Trail of Cthulhu. Strangely, but with more vampires. Way more vampires. Because the Dracula dossier blows the lid off Operation Edom, the rogue MI6 task force using Dracula to stop terror in the 21st century. But Dracula cannot be used. And Edom cannot be trusted. So open the dossier. And follow the clues. To kill Dracula for good. Yeah, that'll work. So let's sum up. The Dracula dossier is two books. Check. Both stand alone. Check. But combined, they create an unprecedented... Really, Ken? Unprecedented? Of unprecedented scope? How's that? Oh, uh, let's see. Both books add up to something like 800 pages. So yeah, an 
improvisational, collaborative campaign of unprecedented scope. Check! And Dracula unredacted that Stoker's real first draft, annotated by the MI6. And the director's handbook, a massive collection of multifaceted encounters. Are both available at the Pelgrane website right now. Check! And mate, the game is mine, I think. No, Robin, it's theirs. It's time to hang with some chads here in the Politics Hut, and if you get that joke, uh, chances are you're older than the median age of a Bernie Sanders supporter. But we are not here to talk about uh, Bernie Sanders or the Democratic primary. We are here in a mood of contrition here in the Politics Hut, because way back in August, we did a segment uh, entitled, Can Donald Trump Be America's Rob Ford? And we both concluded that, nah, It'll never happen. We don't have to worry about that. And uh, I know where I went wrong. Uh, but, uh, uh, Ken, uh, as we record this, we are after the South Carolina Republican primary. Uh, he won that so handily that he got every single delegate. And uh, before him now is an expanse of other primary states in which he is leading commandingly in the polls. So I think we have to, like a lot of uh, pundits, admit that the uh, chances of the impossible happening in this crazy election year are uh, perhaps a little more possible than we wanted to admit. So, uh, Ken, did you go wrong? And if so, how? Well, I think I went wrong, I mean, with everyone else, in just assuming that uh, Republicans would keep voting like Republicans. And in this particular case, they have been voting like a bunch of uh, uh, Jacksonians from 1828. Um, they, they want their guy in the White House and they don't care how much Crocker gets smashed. So the, by and large, the segment that uh, Donald Trump has attracted to the polls are, uh, what used to be called Reagan Democrats, uh, working class white voters. That is, I mean, he, he does really well amongst a lot of different uh, classes. Obviously he won in New Hampshire, college educated and not college educated in, uh, South Carolina. He won evangelicals. Um, so he does well across all subcategories just by dint of being the only candidate who brought up immigration, uh, and the only candidate who, uh, is abusing the media to the degree. I think that the average Republican voter wants to see, but the sort of specifics of his appeal or the in specifics of his appeal uh very much attract a segment of the of the party that has been ignored by party elites and by and large by the rest of the country and that is like i say working class whites the clinton voting strength used to be taking those back away from the reagan republicans and now they've all gone over to donald trump so this will be an exciting uh general election assuming he's the uh, nominee. But I think that where I went wrong is just assuming that he was not going to be able to attract a sufficient number of new voters to outweigh the fact that the Pat Buchanan wing of the party generally taps out around 20% of the vote. Now, we still have not seen whether or not Donald Trump can beat a Pat Buchanan-esque 37% of the vote. But this is what Rob Ford So did. that was his number in uh, New Hampshire. And, it, and, again, and again, you're right that as long as the field remains divided, 37 beats two other contenders or two other contenders plus two asterisk contenders who can reliably suck up the 10% that uh, Cruz or Rubio might need to put the other one away def decisively uh, and turn it into a two-man race where all the polls suggest Trump would actually be vulnerable. But again, uh, we, you know, it, it's no use polling uh, things that are never going to happen. So the question is, if it stays a three-man race down to the convention, do we wind up with 
a contested convention or do the Cruz Rubio dynamic, uh, wind up with one of them, uh, sputtering out and the other one being able to, uh, become the not Trump. Now, Donald Trump, of course, has the answer. Don't assume that all the Cruz votes are going to go to Marco Rubio. And I would say vice versa. Don't assume all the Rubio votes would go to Cruz. And the way that the two of them have been tearing each other up on the, on the primary stage, it might be that, you know, plenty of people and even, you know, 10% is plenty in this kind of situation are going to say, well, uh, screw you for saying those awful things about my candidate. I'm going to go vote for the crazy person. And then they go do it. Right. The, the Rob Ford methodology, of course, your uh, longtime listeners to the podcast will recall that uh, Rob Ford won uh, a plurality, not a majority. And uh, uh, if it, he did not been sidelined by uh, health problems, he uh, theoretically could have done it even again, although I don't think he would have. Uh, the chunk of the, you know, let's elect a uh, a bull and let it loose in the China shop chunk of the anti-elite electorate who uh, do not identify with uh, pointy-headed technocrats and have uh, realized that I think in this instance there's been sort of a a tearing away uh, within the Republican uh, firmament between uh, you know that uh, inexplicable to liberals alliance between uh, working class whites and plutocrats is is sort of coming apart at the seams or rather. Uh, Trump has uh, jumped in to uh, tear it apart of the scenes, but that any play in which a, a Rob Ford uh, rises to power is a f- play in which the opposition is split. And so uh, I think there is definitely a uh, possibility. I think probably it's actually slightly more likely than not that Trump will be able to continue to ride this to become, if not the Rob Ford of America, uh, at the very least, the Rob Ford of the Republican Party. Um, and part of the, there's some really delicious unintended consequences in here uh, that once again point to the, the way that uh, in politics, the rules aren't playtestable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you just got to release the alpha version. And so there's uh, two things going on here, which is one, the uh, after the last time where uh, it, uh, you know, 2012 seemed like crazy town in the uh, in the Republican nomination. So the the elites decided to rejigger the rules a bit to make it less likely that an insurgent candidate would prosper. Well, look at how that is done. Um, <laughs> the other unintended consequence is guess what? Citizens United, uh, which has enabled uh, all of these uh, uh, struggling candidates to still fundraise. Uh, as much money as they possibly can with no external limits. And that means that that has given them no incentive to drop out and to unbreak up the field. And so what we've seen so far... Well, Citizens United has been on for three elections so far, right? It was decided in 04 or sometime like that. And it was... um, uh, No, it was decided right after 08 because it was a Hillary Clinton thing. So it's been in for two elections. The last it election, takes to Trump. The, the last election, it might have worked. But in this election, remember, Citizens United is why Jeb Bush was able to assemble a $100 million PAC campaign budget yep. to blow away the opponents. Uh, Citizens United has spent, you know, some uh, or has created PACs that have spent some ungodly amount of money, but only 7% of that has been spent against Trump, right? All of the rest of it has been spent countering out the previous Citizens United bonus. So everyone comes in with their plus five sword and their plus five armor. And guess what? Now it's still back to, are you Jeb Bush inside that armor? 
well, too bad. You can't win. Right. Because we've had a phenomenon where uh, basically the everybody is not Trump is fighting a bear. <laughs> or rather, they're all arguing over which one of them is going to go fight the bear for the benefit of the survivors. <laughs> so it's like, well, that bear, yeah, if, if, if you go fight it, uh, Marco, it'll rip off your arm and eat it and then uh, uh, spit the arm back out again and beat the rest of you to death with it. But then the rest of us will be in a much better position. So why don't you go and fight that bear? So obviously, you know, they would much rather mess with each other uh, than uh, take on Trump because uh, one of his, uh, you know, uh, signal qualities as someone who does not observe the the usual gentility of uh, political discourse in the United States is that he's a really effective uh, attacker in this endless round of debates that people have going for them. So it's, uh, I'm not saying anything new when I say that it's a tragedy of the commons issue where each of them individually would suffer for going after them, but the uh, group of them as a whole is all suffering because no one is, is going after him. And, uh, you know, there's been mostly a truce so far between uh, Rubio and Trump, but when it, if it comes down to a, uh, a two-hander in the debates, which and I think Rubio is the most likely to survive because Trump is kind of eating Cruz's lunch, much to everyone's demographic surprise, that, uh, you know, he's, uh, I, I would, you know, Rubio might get sympathy votes once uh, Trump starts to go after him, but he's uh, someone who uh, rattles easily and uh, is not going to do well in that format. The thing that I was counting on that would, co- that I thought would cause Trump to evaporate when it came time to actually have caucuses and primaries was I was saying, well, saying to myself, well, he, he has no ground game. He's just, it's just him and some assistants in the office. Well, it turns out he does have a ground game. He's had a field officers working in South Carolina since basically August, since the time we were doing that segment saying he had no ground game. And, uh, unlike everybody else in politics, uh, he has, uh, subverted the, uh, the usual way of doing things by, disguising the fact that he had a ground game. He kept that secret. Uh, normally, the incentive is to show everybody your uh, mass of consultants and campaign workers in order to uh, attract other people to give you money on the grounds that you were the most likely to succeed and to scare away other people from getting into the race. Well, he did it in stealth mode uh, because that's another thing Rob Fords do is they uh, rely on the fact that you underestimate them and it's part of this underestimation that has led no one to go in and fight the bear. And the bear's just been uh, eating everybody's picnic lunches and getting bigger and bigger. Now here's a, here's a question that I don't know about Rob Ford, but uh, in America, one of the reasons that Donald Trump has risen to meteoric heights is of course, he's got so much uh, uh, what they call uh, earned media, right? Where he goes on and he, uh, and he does some giant rally. And so people cover the giant rally or he calls in the, a political chat show on MSNBC and they let him talk for 25 minutes or whatever else. And so he uniquely amongst the other candidates can make news at will and take over the news cycle. Now, before the election started, were people 
Uh, was Rob Ford like a colorful, hilarious guy from Etobicoke that you would call up, you, you know, you're there on your on Canada Today, and he would call in and say, you know, Chet and Dave, what I think the problem is, is there's not enough football going on in the youth or whatever. I mean, was, was he previously a hilarious character that everyone sort of, I mean, they may not have loved, but they sort of recognized him as a person who got to talk on TV? Absolutely, yes. He had a, a much, much bigger profile than any a city councilor when he was a city councilor. He was a, a extraordinarily effective grandstander in an arena where people don't normally get much attention at all. And he had like a radio show, didn't he? Uh, he had a radio show. Right. Uh, he uh, would have like an annual Ford Nation picnic and that would be covered on the news. Um, and then the more circusy he got, uh, the, you know, once you become a, uh, a sort of a clownish bete noir figure who is beloved by a devoted core of people and uh, disdained by a larger core of people who can't seem to figure out how to get them off the stage, uh, that dynamic feeds itself. And so uh, he continued to make himself news. And the, the other thing about that I think uh, links Ford and Trump is that the enormous loyalty they inspire as mavericks immunizes them from all sorts of things that would destroy other candidates and then becomes a plus so that uh, when Trump goes on a debate stage and starts uh, saying to a Republican audience that uh, George Bush didn't keep us safe from 9-11 or... Uh, or worse yet, that he lied us into Iraq, which you know, into I don't Iraq. even think Hillary has said. Uh, Bernie may have said it, but uh, it's a it's a far left uh, talking point, certainly. Uh, well, it's his now. It's his now. And, and that's that's what although Rob he's backed off that one a little bit like he did off the off the mandate in Obamacare. Yeah. So, and that's the other thing that that a Trump can get away with that a Rubio obviously would be uh, tarred with, uh, and a, and a Ted Cruz would be destroyed by is you can say something one day and then the next week contradict yourself, and so your audience who might have been nonplussed by the first one said, "Oh, he just said that to rattle those jerks in Washington and uh, the media." And the real one is the one that I agree with. And conversely, if they agreed with the first one and disagreed with the second one, they're, well, he just had to say that to uh, keep playing the game. That's how that's how my boy Trump likes to operate. Right. And it, even better than it's that. It's all part of the art of the deal, people. Yeah. Even better than that. Well, he he went too far. Or I, d I don't agree with him on that one. But at least he's being honest. Right. He t he's tells being authentic. Yes. No one, no one who is a common politician would say something that bananas. Therefore, <laughs> he's not a common politician. Therefore, he's our guy. Yeah. Therefore, he's our guy, and therefore, uh, our loyalty to him is such that not only will we sometimes dismiss the things that he says that we disagree with, but, uh, you know, and there's a lot of political science data to suggest that people will uh, adjust their uh, supposed policy preferences quite radically in order to accommodate their emotional attachment to a candidate who they feel a cultural affiliation. Yeah. For. So they're like, I like Trump and I never necessarily wanted to ban all Muslims, but now that Trump wants to ban all Muslims, I guess I kind of do. Yes. And, and he's normalizing a lot of crazy things and, and also encouraging other people in the race to adopt uh, those same uh, positions as well. And that's, what's, uh, you know, really dangerous. Well, I mean, that's that, uh, obviously the way that you ever get to Trump supporters, if you don't want to go after the bear directly, is you offer them uh, the same things, right? You go right. to those, you know, white uh, working class voters who have been ignored by the elites, you know, in their, it's certainly in their view since uh, 
Bill Clinton and possibly since Ronald Reagan, depending on the on the individual voter, and you start finding out what it is they do want. And since you have no idea, since you've never cared what they want, um, you now have to sort of, you know, say what Trump is saying. And if you hopefully can say it more reasonably or with a a sense that appeals to them more directly than having war this... crimes, you want war crimes. Well, okay, I'll leave out the bullet soaked in pig's blood, but right. the war crime part I'm down with. Right. I will commit war crimes, but they will be classy war crimes, but not huge. Not um, huge. Try and try and split the split the difference. So the 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 specifics, obviously, of the way to undo Trump are to appeal to his actual voters. And the question is, is it too late? Has the ship sailed, right? Do those voters now look at any sort of last minute scrambling to care what they think as insincere pandering of the sort that Donald Trump warned them people would try? Or do they say, well, I actually did want to vote for someone who was also pro-life and believed in building walls to Mex- against Mexico, so I'm okay with you now, right? And so that's sort of the the question is, can these guys be gotten to in this election cycle at least? Or will it have to wait until 2020 uh, when ideally some uh, non, some actual Republican will try to appeal to uh, the the great working class uh, white population of flyover America? Right. And I think that what, even if Trump does get the nomination, that what he is doing is going to have permanent effect, that he is. Well, especially severing... if he gets the nomination, it'll have a hugely permanent effect. Yes. <laughs> Much like William Jennings Bryan had a permanent effect. Yeah. Um, and so I guess that's the, the next question is. Uh, it, it seems uh, increasingly plausible that he could become the Rob Ford of uh, the Republican Party. Can he become the Rob Ford of America? And in order for that to happen, I would think that, again, uh, Rob Ford's need a three-way race. And uh, you would have to see uh, Sanders get the nomination for the Democrats and then have Bloomberg come in. And then all bets are off. The uh, the uh, horrible spiral into fascism is, is uh, on and <laughs> full bore. <laughs> well, I mean, first of all, we don't know whether it's a spiral into fascism. It could simply be a spiral into caudillo-ism, right? Uh, oh, Trump, I'm reassured uh, now. <laughs> doesn't have any great sign of, of, of believing in any greater ideology. So yes. the, the, the chances of actual fascism emerging in America are still not a lot greater than they were, you know, back when it was just the president that was ignoring the courts. Um, so now uh, we have a a trumpism certainly but like i say whether or not that turns into a national ideology is a whole different question and right. again much of this will depend on you know not even anything that trump or hillary or bernie do or bloomberg but it will depend on the chinese stock market right i mean if there's another recession if there's another great crash like there was in september of 2008 i mean that that took uh john mccain from two points ahead to forever going to lose. And that could happen again. So events, dear boy, events, as Harold McMillan once said, uh, just, just watch out if he starts uh, handing out uh, silver shirts. Yes. No, if you, if you, if you get a classy, it'd be a gold shirt. It'd be a gold shirt. With, yes, with of course. Absolutely. It'd be the classiest shirt you ever had. What was I thinking? Be, uh, yeah. So watch out for the gold shirts and uh, check to see if they're made in Mexico um, or China. But, but that's seeming less likely because, uh, it is starting now t- uh, to look strongly like we are looking at the usual pattern in a democratic race where the uh, more progressive candidate uh, excites a lot of uh, young voters and voters in the uh, sort of aspirational uh, upper class uh, liberal group, but that the uh, different sort of working class and minority constituencies 
that are sort of the backbone of a lot of the upcoming primaries are much more cautious in jumping onto a, a new exciting political figure. And so it looks like uh, the chances of uh, Sanders getting in and therefore Bloomberg getting in and therefore President Trump uh, still seem uh, pretty slim. But you know what? Never yes. underestimate a Rob Ford. Never. Never underestimate a Rob Ford. Never underestimate a Rob Ford. And on that note, uh, that sounds as uh, like a conclusive note of doom as any on which to conclude this segment and move on to another. when your steampunk RPG gets parasites in it. Well, actually, it's a parasitical game system that is added into your steampunk that RPG. That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 3 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by law. Related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the Best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. The graceful statues on their plinths the stars glittering down in significant constellatory form, the smell of laurel leaves pouring off the brazier, the fumes of the python tell us we have entered the mysterious precincts of the mythology hut. And here in the mythology hut, we are listening to the meeping of frogs that have suddenly been silenced. Robin, These tell frogs us. meep no longer. They meep no longer, or perhaps they meep in the afterlife with the powerful water spirits because these are magical frogs that have been buried in miniature coffins underneath churches in Finland. Could there be a better thing in all of anthropological folklore yes. research? I say you know. As you know, in Finland, they bury frogs in coffins under churches. Uh, so uh, Chris Hoof, our uh, collaborator on uh, many things illustrational and layoutable, uh, asked us to look into uh, this phenomenon of uh, frogs in tiny coffins in Finland. And uh, he pointed us to an academic paper that we are going to point you to by one Sonja Hakantaival, undoubtedly mispronounced. Yes, it, it may not be Sonja. Yeah. So and so uh, these are interesting little artifacts. And the question is, what what is the meaning of them? They seem to be have been found in churches sort of from the what about the 1700s to the 1900s 
uh, they could have existed before then if churches had different flooring, or perhaps not all the churches have been dug up. Uh, people who run churches tend to frown on, on digging up the floorboards. Or perhaps uh, little uh, frog coffins eventually decay and fall apart. Right. So these are uh, often uh, well-handcrafted little wooden coffins, sometimes uh, signed with initials uh, that contain the uh, corpse of a frog, or sometimes a bat, or I think a squirrel in one case. And uh, earlier ethnographers uh, figured that, uh, hey, this has got to be the way that fishermen steal luck away from other fishermen. And I'm not sure I can follow the logic of that. The writer of the paper suggests instead that they are uh, anti-hexes, or equivalent of like the the hex marks on on barns in Mennonite uh, country, that they are a warding against witches and witchcraft. Uh, that makes a, a certain amount of sense to me, since we might think of frogs as the familiars of witches, and the same with bats and uh, possibly even squirrels. But of course, here on the podcast, we are not necessarily uh, bound by what is actually true, but are able to make things up as we turn things into inspiration for uh, weird fiction and uh, gaming. So, uh, Ken, what speculations come to your mind as you turn over the idea of tiny frog coffins. Well, I want to start by sort of laying out, because I think that uh, Sonia, Dr. Hukantival, has done a terrific job of really saying everything that you possibly can know about these frogs from a legitimate position. I don't think we're quite done with that. So, first of all, the frogs are found, the little coffin frogs are found almost exclusively in an area of Finland called Savonia in eastern Finland, which is a sort of, it's its own little cultural area, and there's been two similar sightings, uh, one in under Turku, which is like the mother cathedral of, of Finland, and one in Sweden, which is where the bat was. And so I think, first of all, we have to assume that the bat coffin thing is a vampire, and that we should not even involve that in our Finnish frog question, because it's it's a bat, right? By definition, not a frog. And obviously, if you got a bat in a coffin... That's a vampire. And the other thing that's interesting about this is that a lot of these little coffins, uh, many of them are made of alder or they have alder tree uh, poppets that are buried in them, near them, with them, around in the same area, underneath the same cathedral at a different time. And once you start dealing with alder, then you are looking at the sort of traditional Finnish uh, religion, which was that alders are people, that they're sort of the, the, the people you talk to in the forest who will then talk to the other stupid trees who, who don't care about you. And so the alders are sort of the midway between forest and people. And so the presence of these alders indicates to me, at least, that you're talking about a, a, a sort of an older tradition that is specific to this part of Finland, because this is where alders grow. Obviously, they don't grow so much in, in that part of Sweden. Um, and so you've got this set of beliefs that grows up sort of next to and along with uh, Lutheran Christianity, which is what all these churches are. So, except for there's some cases where there's um, uh, Orthodox uh, churches in Karelia over the, over the Russian border, but it's the same basic uh, burying of frogs and the frogs. It's not because they necessarily are the familiars of witches, but the frogs carry a, a power called Vaki, which is sort of like mana only in Finnish. And a Vaki can be just mana or it can be an embodiment of mana. So it can be an elemental or an egregore, or it can just be the, the sheer force that is exerted. And when you 
uh, when, and you're generally, you're trying to mess with people, not who are dealing with your fishing, although that may be possible, but they're deal because some, some of the frogs are wrapped up in little fishing nets. Um, but you are often dealing with, uh, witches who have cursed the, the pond or they, where you pit, you fish or you, they've cursed the uh, ground, or maybe they've cursed you and given your, your daughter epilepsy or something. And you take the frog and you take the water that the frog is in and you splash it on the field. And so that creates a back channel because the field has been cursed by the witch. The water from the frog is now on the field. That means the curse flows to the frog. So the frog now acts as a conductor to the specific witch. And if you bury the coffin, you know, like a coffin underneath, either in a dead man's grave or underneath the church, then that kills the witch. And there's one where they, they have a, she, she uh, has a recording of a, of a, of a, of a folk, uh, giving folklore saying that if you bury the coffin in the graveyard, the spirits of the dead will, as many spirits of the dead will attack the witch as there are pine needles around the graveyard. So that's pretty much the neutron bomb of, the of witchcraft. So you, you bury them in the coffins and in the graveyard to get the spirits of the dead involved, which I guess would be sort of like a, you know, when the, when the water Vaki wakes up in the frog, it looks around and says, what do I do? And the spirits of the dead say, go kill the witch. And that's sort of like a targeting system, I imagine. And then it follows the magical chain of water to that witch and, and kills them, uh, many, many times. And so that, uh, that whole chain of belief with the red thread and the sewing the frog's mouth shut and the, sometimes they stake it into the coffin with tiny needles, which again makes me think vampires are involved somehow. Um, all of that activity is such a rich, nougaty broth of uh folk religion or folk magic depending on how you want to you know judge it on the one hand it's in a coffin under a church but on the other hand it's crazy frog magic that uh i think the just the straight facts are already so fun that we hardly need to make up new i mean we will obviously but we don't need to make up new fun things to do with a dead frog you can if you're attacked by a witch uh, in a game, now you know. Now you know what to do. You find the the spot that was attacked. You take a a piece of that thing. Um, you you rub that to a to a frog. If you're if you feel like your um uh, your plow was cursed, a lot of them have felt that. So you run over a squirrel with the plow, and then you take that squirrel and you bury him. And that's where the squirrels come from. A lot of times is that it was a tool that was um uh that that was hocused, and so instead of burying the tool, which is expensive, you bury a squirrel that was killed or or wounded by the the tool, and because that that blood will now lead them to the witch. So if we uh, have a scenario where our investigators are have discovered that there's something weird going on in a community, and uh, there's a break in at the at the local church, and you see that the floorboards have been disturbed, and you move them, and there's a, a coffin with a frog in it. You know a tiny that, coffin uh, with a frog in it. If it's a full-size coffin with a frog in it, then, again, vampires. That, yes, that would be weird. But uh, a little miniature one that uh, tells us that there is, uh, first of all, uh, someone of Finnish descent uh, involved in the storyline, and uh, that that person is trying to combat a witch. So uh, your first step, then, is to figure out uh, who's Finnish and uh, made the uh, uh, frog coffin and uh, go talk to them and maybe find out uh, more about uh, the witch that might be uh, behind all of this. And that person, of course, might be uh, giving you the straight dope, or there might be some other uh, twist uh, behind that. You could, I guess, also have a situation where the uh, witch is successfully taken care of, but then all of the spirits of the dead are, are awake and hungry, and that could uh, potentially cause problems if the uh, frog coffin was not uh, 
properly crafted or if uh, some fool, uh, perhaps of a player character nature, came along and disturbed the frog coffin and uh, uh, messed things up. And so then you've got a, a secondary problem you... Uh, uh, want to deal with? Are there any other plot hooks that come to mind? Uh, there was another note from the uh, paper that said that if the witch was not baptized, burying the coffin under the church wouldn't work, and you have to bury the coffin under a waterfall. Uh-huh. Because then uh, you bury them under the church, and the the holy spirits, the good people who are buried there in the co- in the graveyard, won't be able to see them because they're invisible to someone who is good, right? So uh you have to bury it under a waterfall because the water knows where everyone is right right and so then you have to go and do research and and try and figure out whether the uh if you're fighting the witch you have to figure out whether they've been baptized or not that's not necessarily an easy fact to glean certainly if the witch you know died in you know 1750 or something uh and the church was you know uh luckily burned down right around that time maybe by the precursor of some Nordic death metal cult that was out there banging away on their farm implements to uh, because they've been cursed. A Nordic tambourine cult. Yes, the, the worst kind. You hate those guys. <laughs> Nordic cowbell cult. So we've got uh, our basic outline of our uh, uh, scenario here. Are there? Uh, I guess there's the, also the idea that we're working with a modern magic uh, campaign that people might repurpose these. Uh, uh, anti-witch coffins away from their original point and take them as uh, uh, weapons foci to use against uh, uh, people who follow a rival uh, magical tradition. And uh, they are all sorts of different things that could go wrong. For example, you know, uh, again, attracting the uh, spirits of the dead to the, uh, to the wrong person. Or if you do it, you know, outside of this area of Finland, you know, if you do it in Idaho, for example, you might, well, attract the spirits of the dead, but they don't know what to do. They don't know all these rules, and they uh, uh, may have the uh, original impulse to go around and attack a witch. But again, you know, then what? And how do you put them down? Because the, you've um, messed up the rules by trying to be uh, too syncretic with your uh, borrowed frog coffin. Yes, you've culturally appropriated your frog coffin, and now they're going to get you. Yeah. Um, another thing, you might be able to use the needles that were stuck through the frog, and you can magnetize it and make it a compass that finds witches. But of course, when you've pulled the needle out, then the frog is full of evil witch Vaki and can come after you. And maybe it can grow up to become like a giant deep one or a gill man and attack you. Uh, but you really want that witch needle because it's the only way that you can reliably find witches in a sort of a mirror level. Uh, who could be a witch? Anyone could be a witch sort of uh, conspiracy hidden uh, game. And that that compass needle is super important to you. And it's more important than maybe fighting one Gilman is. And then, of course, you get to the uh, sort of the curio shop uh, kind of plot line where uh, somebody unwittingly purchases or puts in a museum uh, one of these uh, frog coffins without having uh, done the anti-magic. And so that uh, then uh, arouses the ire of a a current witch who is feeling under its spell and doesn't want to be uh, chased away by the spirits of the dead. And that can... uh, cause uh, all manner of uh, disturbance as well. I mean, all this stuff was, was dug up in the early uh, 20th century for the most part. One of these cases was found uh, before that, uh, but most of these were, were dug up in the early 20th. Um, and so what that might be is that once you've dug up all of these things at once and put them in museums, that any individual one of these doesn't cause a problem, but digging up a whole bunch of them and moving to the museums and getting them lost. And uh, there was one case where they opened up the coffin and the little frog was gone, right? They they had all the netting and things, but the frog part was missing. Mm. And so, ha um, So having all of these things removed at this wave of church renovations may have actually weakened 
uh, Finland's magical barriers either against demons or as actually happened against the Soviets. Um, and so having all of these, uh, uh, frog spirits out, you know, running around distracted the power of God so much that he couldn't save them from, uh, uh godless, uh, Bolshevists, uh, who were coming after them. And so perhaps finding all of these frog coffins, reburying them or recreating the frog coffins, which remember involves Casting witch spells on people and getting them to start responding is the only way to rebuild the magical defenses, either of Savonia against global warming or against or Finland against Putin. Right. And so you're like, well, how much witchcraft do I want to encourage in order to create this anti witchcraft spell? And is there a way that maybe we can use all of these frog spirits to go get the ghosts of the old witches and, you know, put them on the front line? Is there some other option besides cursing a bunch of innocent Finns uh, so that they will resort to uh, uh, the sort of crowdsourced uh, magical defense that we really need against uh, Putin and those and the warlocks that are behind his rise. And for our fictional purposes, of course, we can posit that there's still one church left that nobody has uh, uh, renovated or messed with that still has its frog coffins intact. And so you have your uh, uh, Putinist agents and the uh, player characters yeah, they've discovered the location of this uh, all of a sudden, and you are uh, trying to get there before they do, because once they yank those out, then their uh, sphere of influence can uh, increase. And then that would uh, raise the question of, well, there's all these other cultures that are ringed around Russia, all of which would have their own uh, different folk beliefs, all of which presumably had uh, their defenses shattered uh, by the Iron Curtain, and um, some of them have rebuilt them better than others, and you've got a uh, sort of a magical border war campaign. Yeah, the Ukrainian magicians were really not on the ball, <laughs> but you have to, yeah, you can go down to Estonia or Lithuania or Kazakhstan or wherever and, and start looking and saying, maybe there is a way that we can syncretically build a guided anti-Putin warlock uh, device from these uh, Finnish um, uh, frog coffins and from whatever they have in Estonia and from, you know, Kazakh uh, witch uh, entangling nets and and whatever else, right? But there's some methodology by which each player character can become the master of a different anti-Putinist uh, uh, warlock uh, capacity, and then they can all join like Voltron to defeat uh, the Kremlin's warlocks. Well, if we've got a whole campaign arc, I think our work in this segment is done, and it's time to uh, start our final segment of this episode. This episode is also brought to you by the shadowy strike force that is Arc Dream Publishing. Their Kickstarter for the Delta Green role-playing game has come to an end. With smashing success, funding a case locker full of stretch goals. From scenarios to setting notes to fiction and even a play. A play about a certain yellow king. But as the team of Dennis Detweiler, Adam Scott Glancy, Kenneth Height, Shane Ivey, and Greg Stolze frantically burn the midnight oil to bring you all that rogue counterintelligence goodness... You can still catch a case of Delta Green Fever. With such products as the source book that started it all, the original Delta Green. Countdown, its update to a fear-drenched new millennium. Or play the new Delta Green game with free quick start rules. They come with a scenario and pre-generated characters. Check out such terrifying fiction anthologies as 
Extraordinary Renditions. With a story by yours truly, or tales from failed anatomies. With a special guest story by yours truly. Not to mention, Strange Authorities. Or dare to swipe the pages of the twisted grandpappy of Cthuloid zines, The Unspeakable Oath. And stay tuned to this audio space for more Delta Green role-playing news. Plus an acid-tinged hint or two of the fall of Delta Green, the 60-set gumshoe standalone game by our very own Kenneth Height. How's that going, Ken? I'm writing it even as we speak with two of my extra arms and my auxiliary brain case. So brace yourself for the coming flood of Delta Green from Arc Dream Publishing. Well, I'm sorry to say, people, that we are trapped on a uh, bridge headed into New Jersey. And in this case, the uh, governor has closed all but one of the lines of traffic, not in order to punish a political opponent, but to prevent the truth from getting out. Because this week, the Elliptony Hut, that uh, locus of miscellaneous mystery, is located in the Pine Barrens of New Jersey. And if it's in the Pine Barrens, I think many of us know that we're going to talk about that most adorable of cryptids, the Jersey Devil. Uh, Ken, I think... Oh, okay, well, we finally got through traffic. Here we are, we're arriving at the Pine Barrens, and look over there, it's the Jersey Devil. Ken, what does he look like? Uh, he looks like a kangaroo, only with a goat head and wings and horns, because he's a devil. And I he said has, he was adorable. He's, he's so darling. Um, and uh, it jumps around like a kangaroo, and it emits the occasional blood-curdling scream, because why not? The description, obviously, is a gallimaufry of different eyewitness sightings of whatever tied in with the notion that it's the devil so that it has to have wings and horns. Um, the odds of there being a winged kangaroo in the Pine Barrens, even in the Pine Barrens, are, I think, maybe a little lower than they might be. Uh, but again, the Mothman's got wings. Maybe uh, The Thunderbird, the Piazza bird has got wings. So maybe bad luck American uh, things. The Thunderbird's not bad luck, but the Piazza's bad luck. Well, American cryptids have a lot more distance to cover than one. That's true. From it's, it's not UK, like in Britain so. where one alien big cat can take out most of a county. Yeah, so you've, you've got to fly around. You, right, you need yeah. uh, air support. So uh, one of the potential origin stories is that uh, in the uh, early 1700s, there was this uh, Leeds family. There was some political struggle in uh, in the area, and uh, the uh, the matriarch of the family, after having 12 children, had a 13th child, and the story got out that she'd uh, given birth to a uh, devil. And the story then further goes that a clergyman exercised the demon for 100 years, and that happened in 1740, and it was not seen again until 1890. So there's presumably 50 years in there where the Jersey devil was, you know, elsewhere. It's like the Minnesota devil and the Utah devil, and then he finally came back home. Although there was, in theory, a sighting uh, by Stephen Decatur in 1803, and Joseph, Bort, uh, Joseph Bonaparte, former king of Spain, uh, saw it in New Jersey in the 1830s. And why we don't have the Jersey Bonaparte instead of the Jersey devil uh, haunting the state, I don't know. But I think that would be even more fun. Yeah. Um, uh, there's been uh, devil sightings in Haddonfield in 1859, in Bridgeton in 1874. Um, uh, and then eight, the 1890s was the big, um, uh, the, the, the first big flap because of course it's the first big, uh, uh, mass media era in America. So that's when all of our big flaps happen. That's when the, the first batch of UFO sightings start. So yes. and the, when newspapers start just making stuff up, exactly. Well, they, they've been making stuff up ever since there were newspapers and down to the present day. But the, the high point, the most, the funnest of making things up maybe is in the 1890s. Anyway, Daniel Leeds. 
uh, is also a, was also an almanac publisher as it transpires. And his almanac was not properly Quaker. It was full of alchemical and magical symbols. It talked about, uh, angel magic and, uh, uh, the, uh, the sort of the visionary works of, of the later German immigrants who became, uh, in, in large part the Mennonites, although they are not all part of the Mennonite tradition, but they had, uh, a sort of a, a series of mystical revelatory traditions that were no more popular in America than they were in Germany, but at least people didn't usually kill you. They just made up stories about your wife being, uh, the mother of the devil. Um, and the question being, is the Jersey devil something from, the image that is on the, on the colophon of the Leeds Almanac, which had little dragons on it. And so the question is, is the Leeds family identified with the dragon such that when people are telling Jersey Devil stories, they are telling them in such a way that even if you don't hear that it was Mother Leeds, you'll hear, oh, it's a winged thing in New Jersey. Oh, I get it. It's one of those pagan almanacs that that jerk Leeds made. And that, I guess, is the argument about the, the secret origin of the Jersey devil that it's uh, based on people slanging off a rival almanac maker. Um, and, but the, you know, by and large, um, what that could also be is that the almanac maker traffics with spirits because that's what his Quaker neighbors accuse him of. And are you calling Quakers liars? I, I'd like to, I'd like to see you do that to my face or to their face rather. I don't care. But, um, but if uh, they say that an almanac maker is trafficking in devils, what more likely thing then that his, uh, his, uh, Mrs., uh, the nice Mrs. Leeds has to give birth to the devil because of his filthy pagan habits. I mean, that makes just as much sense as a almanac rivalry from 150 years ago turning up in the newspapers in 1909. I mean, that, that's way more work than even a journalist in 1909, uh, puts into Jersey Devil stories. Right. Because it's not the period when people would start going back and finding a backstory. So it's, and is that when the, the backstory first surfaces in conjunction with these, this wave, or does this come in later? Well, the, the backstory starts in 1790. So the argument of the backstory being a snotty thing that people said about Mrs. Leeds is barely plausible. Although again, 1790 is more than a hundred years after the Leeds almanacs are being published. So even the, the, I mean, the, the, you know, the skeptical inquirer does much good work, but in this particular case, I think they're straining at a gnat and, and swallowing a camel, uh, because that's just not the way that social history works. The, ex- the existence of a really honest to God boogeyman in the Pine Barrens can be explained by walking anywhere in the Pine Barrens. It's horribly creepy. And so the notion that there's a boogeyman in those woods that will get you is probably what every single mom in New Jersey's in Southern New Jersey told her kid. And of course, you know, at some point you're going to see something because people see things. We know that. And some of those things are going to be ascribed to the Jersey devil. The visual format of which comes from a, it being called a devil and b maybe the folk memory of these dragons on the Leeds almanac. But the notion that, uh, the Jersey Devil was made up in 1790 to score points in a hundred year old almanac fight. Um, <laughs> three political revolutions afterward, by the way, um, is a little bit, uh, beyond the pale, I think, but good for them fight tracking down the Leeds almanacs, which add, uh, a even better origin story than the one that uh, they came up with in 1790. Right. So, so this is in fact an even, even more recent attachment of two cool separate things together right. yeah. by someone weirdly trying to 
debunk it, the story, and making it weirder. <laughs> I'm going to make this story more awesome and cool so no yes. one will believe it anymore. Good job. Right, because otherwise it would be, uh, it is cool to have a crossover of supernatural lore plus cryptid sightings. Yeah, right, absolutely. I mean, any anytime you can add a, I mean, again, like I say, good work finding a magical almanac. You know, nicely done, but explaining the Jersey Devil with it is perhaps yeah. a bridge too far. It's like coming up with a story you found out that uh, Alester Crowley used to hang out with a jackalope. Right? Yeah, it's I mean, too much like, to ask for. Too good to check. Good, good news. <laughs> good news, everyone. So we've got. Uh, otherwise, we've got sort of a. He's basically a, a. His niche in the cryptid ecosystem is basically on the level of a chupacabra. Right? He's uh, attacking people's animals and stuff. He's not a. A, a threat to people is he? Are there? Has he been uh, accused of uh, attacking humans? Uh, the worst thing that the Jersey Devil has ever done, I think, is step on a uh, railway track and catch fire. Um, uh, and so, every so often, uh, if the Jersey Devil, you know, if he's if he's catching fire, that would be dangerous. But the Jersey Devil does not actually go in and start. Um, uh, and start slaughtering people. He doesn't even really, what I want to say, he doesn't even foretell disaster the way that the Mothman does. And he doesn't necessarily bring bad luck, but you know, it's, it's a bad news to see him, I guess. Um, the 1909, uh, flap is almost certainly, uh, a, a hoax. We do know that because the guy who ran the arch street museum in Philadelphia bought a kangaroo, painted it green, tied wings and horns to it and then let it loose in New Jersey. So, <laughs> so I'm going to say yeah. just on my on my uh standing here uh that 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 makes it a hoax. That if you buy a kangaroo and paint it green, you are now well beyond citizen journalism. You are into actual hoaxing. <laughs> yeah. That does require special yeah. pleading to uh, get out of that one. Um so the thing about the Jersey Devil is that despite the word devil in there, He's uh, sort of cool and adorable and mostly a threat to himself if he steps on the wrong railway track. So how do we incorporate him into a scenario? As a, there are certainly bodies occasionally are uh, uh, interred and then later dug up in the, uh, in the Pine Barrens. Uh, could we somehow uh, wrap up the Jersey Devil into uh, some sort of uh, mob lore? Um, you could have the Jersey... I, I mean, the trouble with the Jersey Devil is because he's so almost always... A, um, uh, a, you know, like I say, a sympathetic figure, depending on uh, your side in the NHL, um, that the, the, you know, you would, you'd think, okay, how do we tie the Jersey Devil into mob war? And the first thing that you go to is sort of the Swamp Thing story where, you know, there's some mob informant who's been buried and the Jersey Devil finds him and he, you know, merges with the Jersey Devil and then goes around whacking mobsters in his awesome, with his awesome Jersey Devil powers. I don't know that you necessarily, can have a mob Jersey devil unless you've got a situation where, you know, as the Italian mob is being pressured by these new mobs from the Dominican Republic or Russia or wherever, and they start falling back and back and back on the oldest of old school uh, Sicilian strega, right? The the old magic that, you know, underlays all of their, their, uh, their rituals. And someone says, oh, I know what we're going to do. We're going to go and we're going to find out uh, where this... Uh, the, this devil worship site that was, uh, pointed to by all these almanacs was, we're going to go back and find it and we're going to conjure up our own Jersey devil and he's going to become this ultimate killing machine for us, the mob. And so they, they summon up the Jersey devil in a way and, and set him to, to, to whacking their foes in an attempt to sort of restore 
the past, the glorious, you know, uh, uh, you know, Gambino era past of the seventies, uh, eighties and nineties, instead of this horrible new multicultural mobster business. Right. And even that sounds uh, like something that belongs in a Howard the Duck uh, comic. Yeah. Because it's very hard to take the Jersey devil seriously because as you say, he's so darn cute. Right. So what you've got to do is you've got to have a, uh, you know, a group of, of uh, amateur uh, cryptozoologists head out to the Pine Barrens uh, in search of the Jersey devil and uh, what they find is something altogether different and more horrible. And that could then tie back into the, uh, you know, the older Leeds family uh, uh, alchemy devil worship thing. And that what they, the, the scary thing they find is something actually scary, not the Jersey devil that, that brought them out there in, in the first place. Because I, I don't even think like the, the esoterrorists even aren't going to be able to build much of a magic fueling panic by uh, hoaxing another Jersey devil sighting. Now I can give you a couple of things that are leading to creepy with the Jersey devil, right? First of all, our buddy Lindbergh, uh, his friend Emilio Carranza crashed in the, in the Pine Barrens in 1928 and died. So uh, we've got sort of that Lindberghian connection. The other thing that we have going on in the Pine Barrens is a eugenicist named Henry Goddard, who set up the Laboratory and Department of Research for the Study of Feeble-Mindedness in Vineland, New Jersey. And he sets that up in 1906. And that's where he's doing his research. And I want to emphasize there are quote marks around research on the Calacacs, uh, and is engaging in God knows what kind of other uh, doctoring on the, the, the folk of the Pine Barrens that he has decided are, uh, low, uh, Innsmouth, uh, Dunwich people and can be uh, experimented on, uh, in the name of progressive eugenic theory. And so like so many of our modern horror movies at the center is, you know, an old asylum with a bunch of tortured kids or an old, uh, 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 hospital where a bunch of people were tortured. We've got a literal mad eugenicist in the middle of the Pine Barrens engaging in his weird eugenic whatnot. And maybe his weird eugenic whatnot ties into, um, uh, the, uh, the, the magic of the almanacs and the, and the, and the devil pagan tree and all of the other horrible stuff that goes on in, uh, the Pine Barrens. It's a strange, uh, diminutive figure that you see out of the corner of your eye and then you apply the uh, Jersey Devil template onto when you go and report it, turns out to be a deformed child who's been alive for 80 years. That is much more creepy and and, and terrible and uh, does allow us to bring in the imagery before we begin to uh, nastify it. Right. And so the, the, the sort of, the, I mean, again, I'm sure that if you look into the history of the Pine Barrens, you can find all manner of horrible things that have happened. But that one sort of you know, ties into the whole notion of, you know, miscegenation that the original legend is about because you've got a, a woman who, who has a, a baby by the devil at the very beginning of it. And so all of these sort of pieces of lore can be uh, thought of in pure and proper esoteric fashion to have been filtered backward into history by the opening of the outer dark that uh, Dr. Goddard did there in um, uh, the Pine Barrens. And that that sort of doorway just sits there and throbs and these sort of, um, horrible uh, uh, victim mutants that he built uh, uh, escape every now and again and get seen as the Jersey devil. And if the, if the esoterists can sort of turn that legend around and make it about this, then they've won a real victory. And then suddenly, you know, everything starts looking creepy about the Jersey devil from the uh, hockey team on down. Right. Because if there's a uh, Island of Dr. Moreau in the middle of the Pine Barrens, suddenly 
Jersey Shore makes a lot more sense. <laughs> yes, as do certain other things out of New Jersey. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. Well, if we're going dun, 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 I think uh, we've hit the end of our episode. So, we may very uh, well have. A dun, dun, dun is a, uh, is a, a universal signal. Yes, uh, I believe it's marked by three dots. So uh, uh, we've made that signal, and now let's uh, uh, slowly uh, back away from the Pine Barrens before uh, the uh, still active residents of that... Uh, Asylum, uh, come and get us, and we'll uh, rejoin you uh, next week, uh, those of you who are not uh, set upon and devoured by mutants. Don't be devoured by mutants. We love you too much, listeners. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Phoenix. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. And frog our coffins by hitting the donate button at KenAndRobinTalkAboutStuff.com. Join such luminaries of patronage as... Pedrick Griffin. And Daniel Callahan. Our imminent Patreon is all the more imminent. We've got the reward tiers all worked out. Next stop... Making the video for a thing that's in audio. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff.